The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. This is for Master Women's Gateless Gate, K-17. The national teacher calls three times. The national teacher called three times to his attending monastic, and three times the monastic answered. I was about to say that I've turned my back on you, said the national teacher, but it's you from the very beginning of things. It's you who've turned your back on me. The commentary. The national teacher called three times and his tongue fell to the ground. The attending monastic answered three times, and her answers revealed such hidden radiance. The national teacher was old, his mind perfectly alone. It was like holding an ox's head to the grass so it could eat, but the monastic couldn't have cared less. If you're stuffed to the gills, what good is gourmet food? Right now, speak up, tell me, how is it they turn their backs on each other? When the nation is lucid, Sage talents are treasured. When a family is prosperous, little children are pampered. The verse. <clears throat> a teacher's burden is like iron prison stocks without holes. Bequeathed to descendants, it renders idleness impossible. If you want to support the house, prop up gates and doors. It's simple enough. Go barefoot. Scale mountains of daggers. So this weekend, we've had many of you here for this introductory retreat, exploring this path of liberation, the Eightfold Path, the Eight Gates. The Eightfold Path is not, strictly speaking, a linear path from right understanding to right concentration. But if we think of it that way for a moment, that we begin with developing some understanding of what Buddhism is, what the teachings are, what these particular words that are so important in Buddhism mean from Buddhist perspective, so that we're understanding them correctly. And then on the basis of that, we can establish a right intention, bring forth an aspiration that is based in that right understanding. And then that begins to flow into our words and our actions it begins to become a part of how we comport ourselves. And it enters into our livelihood, how we use our livelihood to serve, not just to get a job done or to earn an income. And then we are in the position to begin to really understand in right effort what is helpful, what is skillful, and how to bring that forth and strengthen it, and what is not helpful, what is not skillful how to know the difference, and how to be skillful at both bringing forth what is helpful and not bringing forth what is not. And then our mindfulness really has, we've laid a ground for our mindfulness to really be practiced, to be developed and deepened, and to let that naturally deepen into our concentration, our samadhi, and then that naturally leads into insight, realization, seeing the real nature of things. 
And then that insight, that understanding, or that direct understanding, now informs our right understanding. Now it's not just conceptual. It's realized. And that deepens both our conceptual and our direct experience of understanding, which now gives us opportunity to bring forth our intention and aspiration in a much clearer, more deep way, understanding now what we're in the midst of, the nature of causation. And then that naturally then feeds into our speech and our actions and so on. So then we can think of this, if we think of this for the moment as linear, we see that it's actually all working together. And all of this is so we can live it. As I've said before, I assume that in most religious or spiritual traditions and practices that the point is for it to have some impact on one's life. In Buddhism, that's the whole deal. If it's not happening, then something about our practice is not happening, something significant. I recall one teacher in the records who, as their disciple was leaving, having finished their training, the teacher said, I pray that you will live it. And so here in this koan, the national teacher, whose name was Nanyang Chung, he was fairly early in the Zen tradition. He studied with both the fifth ancestor, Hongren, and Huenong, the sixth ancestor. He lived in late seventh, much of the eighth century. And he was the national teacher. So, separation of church and state is vitally important, but if we had an enlightened teacher <laughs> who had the ear of those in power, but let's, let's not mess with <laughs> that separation. So, but he was. He was the national teacher, and so he was in a very important position to influence. Once somebody asked him, a student asked him, Nanyang, how can one become Buddha? And Nanyang said, cast off the Buddha and every being, and at that moment you're liberated. So here, the national teacher calls three times, attendant, and the attendant each time calls, answers back, yes, teacher, attendant, yes, teacher, attendant, yes, teacher. So in the commentary, Shibayama says, what is the meaning of calling three times and answering three times? Of course, obvious question, why? And so each of us could provide many different answers for that. We could come up with all kinds of reasons for that. But then what do we have? Ideas, conjectures, projections, nothing changes. Our life is the same. This doesn't have any real import or meaning, significance. So that's not the nature of the koan. The koan is not to intellectualize it or trying to turn it into another idea. It's not an allegory. It's not a parable. It's a direct pointing to something, to you, to the real nature of you. Bodhidharma said that Zen is a special transmission, person to person, teacher to student, Buddha to Buddha, that is outside of the sutras, with no reliance on words and letters. Buddhism obviously has lots of words, lots of teachings. We use them abundantly. But what Bodhidharma is saying is that as powerful as those are, they can only go so far. They cannot convey the truth. They themselves do not have the power. 
But that's not the problem of words. Words are very powerful. They do what they, we make them to do. They have a marvelous function. They're just realms they can't take us. It's like a bicycle, which I happen to think is one of the most perfect machines ever made. Just my opinion. So it's a marvelous thing. It has marvelous function, but there's certain things it can't do. It can't fly. It can't swim. The koan is not an answer to be explained. It's not about the conveyance of knowledge. It's a direct pointing to the human mind, Bodhidharma said, and the realization of your true nature, Buddhahood. It's a direct experience to be realized, free of desires, even the desire to be free. And so when the student sits and meditates with the koan, they have to sit with it in a way that isn't turning their conceptual mind, isn't just a thought process. They're using the words and the meaning of the words to go beyond the words and the meaning. And so that's something that can't be explained to the student. They have to find that themselves. They have to find their way in to that power of their mind, of their meditation, that capacity. And so in Zazen, we enter into the heart of this mind. And we enter into the mind of the heart, the fundamental ground, all to face what is real, the real, the true. Not so much in terms of the truth, but what is true. And to see what is not true so that we can understand what can we actually rely upon. Because in samsara, the deal with samsara is we're relying on all kinds of things that each have their own function. And if they're good things, they have a good function. But we rely on them for things they cannot provide. And so we get disappointed and dissatisfied. And so in Zazen, we face what is before us without turning away, and without getting caught, which sounds pretty simple. But we find it's not. That we actually have very strong habits, very strong, stronger than we know, stronger than we think they could possibly be, to turn away and to get caught. And in not, in, in, in leaping free of both of those, practicing not falling into those habits, we are practicing the middle path. This is one aspect of the middle way. And we're beginning to develop a natural stability, a natural ease, a natural patience. Natural in the sense of it's not something that is being forced. A trust. Developing a capacity to not be anxious about our imperfections, or more accurately, just not be anxious about being you. And so what is it that is before you from one moment to the next? One moment, one breath, one awareness, one letting go, one returning, one moment of defeat, one beginning again. Moment to moment, alive, fresh, awake. And that's one of the most important aspects, practices of Buddhism is keep it alive. Because what happens when we do things over and over again is they become dull in our mind. We become dull to them. We start to go to sleep. They start to die. And so as we sit here, and that then is like kind of what happens in life, right? Life becomes very 
dull and mundane and ordinary, so we have to keep upping the ante, turning up the volume, more confetti, right? (laughs) More. It's got to be more. Because this isn't getting through anymore. So it's got to be more. So that's sort of what we've got. But that's not what we are. And so in Zazen, we sort of take that and bring it to its simplest form, one breath for a whole period. That's what you've got. Stay awake. It is alive. It is alive. How do you know that? Because you're alive. Because I'm alive. So the breath in and of itself is aliveness. And so the practice is to be alive in that which is alive, which means to be awake, alert, present, open, trusting, unattached. And then realize that this one is not like the one before. How do we know? Because the one before is past. There's no comparison. It's not going to be like the one to come. How do we know? Because the one to come we're not giving rise to in our mind. There's just this. This breath, this day, this period of Zazen, this weekend. And because the mind seeks comfort and familiarity and, and creates a sense of familiarity, I mean, there are things that are kind of familiar and similar. right? So there's a similarity between one breath and the next. There's a similarity between how you looked yesterday and today, and so on. But we impute a false sense of permanence of essential nature of something that is fixed. And so in this koan, the teacher calls three times, attendant, yes, attendant, yes. To enter into that, free of ideas, projections, beliefs, and fears, just that. Each time the teacher calls for the first time, each time the student answers, for the first time. There's nothing more. There's nothing remaining, nothing neglected. That's the natural mind that each of us have. We call it Buddha mind. But usually, that's not what happens, right? What happens? Usually there's accretion. So there's attendant. Yes. Attendant. What? Attendant. What? There's the building up of something. What is that that's being built up? How to be so clear, so plain and natural, plain like water. And how to trust plain as being abundant, as being so deep and profound and rich and broad that you can never reach reach the end of it. That's the plain of this mind, uncontrived, unburdened, But then if that's so, why does the teacher then say, I was about to say, I have turned my back on you. But it's you from the very beginning. It's you who turned your back on me. And this is a really nice example of how the koans use language freely. The the, the, the nature of language, the way we use it, is its purpose is to define, to solidify, to make things clear and fix them in that clarity. But literature doesn't do that. Poetry doesn't do that. It uses it freely, to some degree. In the Dharma, 
because language is realized as free, we can use it for what it is and we can use it for what else it is. And so when the national teacher says, I thought I had turned my back on you, we hear that as, well, wait a minute. Turning your back on someone is disrespectful, it's rude, it's not a good thing. Denying, ignoring, what is he saying? And so that's exactly what the student has to take up. So the tendency could very easily be that the student gets caught in that web of what they already know that means. And then they get angry at the national teacher and they want to support the attendant who's having their back, the teacher turn. And, and what have we got? Just another situation <laughs> that is not plain, is not uncontrived, when we face forward, everything is in view. When we face back, what is there now? Remember, the student asked Nan Yang, what is, how do I become Buddha? And Nan Yang said, cast off Buddha and everything. This is not disregard. It's actually a gesture of profound respect. Rather than turning away and creating distance, it's a gesture of and an expression of profound intimacy, of compassion. It's interesting how, with these introductory retreats, because we do them every month, and we've doing, been doing that for a long time, and that every time a group of people comes in, it's a different group of people, it's a different retreat, and yet sometimes there are sort of currents that run through, just in having conversations and face-to-face, and one of the things that came up quite a bit this, this weekend for quite a, in quite a number of conversations was some of you who grew up in different religious traditions had not so great experiences. And the effect that had on your relationship or people's relationship with religion, with spiritual practice, with this kind of thing. And so then coming into Buddhism and it's like, bringing some of that history, some of that caution, some of that wariness, which is understandable. And one of the things that's so important to appreciate, that I appreciated, have appreciated about Buddhism since I encountered it, was how Buddhism itself cautions against it becoming something fixed and solid. How it becoming, how, against it becoming just another attachment. To not cling to the worldly, to the mundane, to the sense of the ordinary, but not cling to the sacred, to the spiritual. I was mentioning to one person, Dadaroshi used to say that Buddhism is designed to self-destruct, which I always was like, that seemed a little catastrophic, you know. <laughs> and that doesn't mean that it ceases to be helpful, skillful, that the teachings and the forms and the things that have been come down to us cease to be a value, that doesn't mean that at all. It means what Don Yuan was saying. Cast off Buddha and everything. Cast off every vestige, every trace, every thing that we might cling to. Because in that clinging, we're turning it into something that it's not. It's becoming something that it's not. It's said that even gold does something very precious. If you get it in your eyes, it'll blind you. And so there's a lot in the teachings, it's even in the precepts, 
the Buddha said, if you're going to pick up a snake, you have to know how to pick it up. Otherwise, it'll bite you. Anything that has power is like that. So in picking up the Dharma, we have to learn by practicing how to pick it up, how to hold it in our minds, how to engage it, how to regard it, so that it, it retains its true power, its, its real capacity. Because when we cling to it, then it diminishes that capacity. At worst, it becomes something that ends up becoming harmful. And the thing is, we will attach to it. I mean, why wouldn't we, right? That we come in living our lives largely in a kind of attachment-based way, and that suddenly we're just not going to do that anymore? Not likely. But it's okay, right? Because now we're alert, more or less, and we have a practice that when we're practicing, we're constantly developing the capacity to recognize when we're clinging to something, see the signs, right? Because there are always signs. It'll cause trouble. When we attach to things, it causes trouble. That's why we right effort is important. We have to be able to recognize what is trouble and what is not, because sometimes it's just difficult, but it's not trouble. It's difficult, and it's got a kind of necessary difficulty because we are untying a knot. We're doing something that we have not done before. To face what is true. In the teachings of patience in Buddhism, there are different aspects of patience that we have to develop patience for, and one of those is just simply facing what is true. It's interesting, isn't it? The Buddhism had to have a a clear understanding and a kind of caution that when we face something that's true, that is the real nature of something, we're very likely to be frightened. Why? You know, usually we're afraid when we face something that feels dangerous, life-threatening. We could be hurt. We could be killed. We could Something serious is a threat. But why when we face words, an idea, a teaching, a view, a mental, a mental concept, why might we react in very much the same way? What is being threatened? What beliefs, what cherished ideals, stories, views of ourself, views of others? And what do we do when those beliefs or those ideals that we've held long held to do contain some truth that are worthy of respect, worthy of maintaining, but they also contain what before were hidden, unrevealed truths. And so this is July 4th weekend, interdependence, Independence Day, independence from a tyranny. A war was fought to be free, to be self-governing, to be able to decide for oneself or ourselves to base in a sense of equality. And so this noble vision that arose out of a tremendous amount of suffering that had already been brought about upon the indigenous and that was very much in the midst of suffering in terms of institutionalizing enslaved people. And so here we have this wondrous 
radical, revolutionary experiment that is not only arising at the same time, but is actually predicated on, to certain degrees, is dependent on the, the creation of the past and ongoing creation of suffering, immense suffering. What are we to do with that? What are we to do when we see within ourselves those two sides? Buddhism understands this, <laughs> because nothing is one thing. Nothing is absolute. Nothing has intrinsic, inherent characteristics. Nothing is all bad. Nothing is all good. That's not the way the universe is. And so in trusting the teachings, the Dharma, we have to trust ourselves, right? Even within this kind of training, most of the time you're, you're guiding yourself when you sit, when you're off the cushion. So how do you be a trustworthy guide? And how do you trust others to help you in that? The Buddha said, if they speak what is true and what is kind and what is beneficial for others, and if what they say leads to those things, then they are trustworthy. The Buddha said, examine the teachings with wisdom. With wisdom. That's why right understanding is so important. We have to examine them not just from the perspective of what I already know and what I believe and what I want, but with a mind that is actually based in wisdom, that is, that is wanting to understand things as they are. Examine the teachings with wisdom. Gain a reflective acceptance of them, an acceptance based in reflection. In other words, don't just take them on because the Buddha said so. He said, do not study the Dharma to win arguments, or to criticize other, others, but for the good of yourself and others. Study the Dharma for the good of yourself and others. And to be at peace with others, we have to face ourselves. That's what the Buddha said. That's how it works. To know others in the world, we have to know ourselves. As we know ourselves more and more clearly, we know others more and more clearly, too. And so when the national teacher says, I was about to say, I've turned my back on you. But I see that you, from the beginning, it's you who have turned your back on me. We should understand that this is not ever to ignore or to avoid or to deny or to suppress. That's not what he's saying. Let's be very clear about that. It is actually a phrase to invite you in to deep waters, the deep waters of your mind and body. Having Buddha nature, we could understand, is meaning you already know. You already know. I mean, think about it. How is it that when we encounter the Dharma, let's say if we have an affinity for the Dharma, we encounter it and we're moved, something is touched, something stirs that we don't understand, we can't explain. It's as though that teaching which is true is touching that which is true within us, that which we already know. The Buddha said, in that examination, so how do we examine? The Buddha said, in that examination, that if we have no regard for what he called the true person, your true person, not the person you were told you were, that society has designated you as, based on whatever characteristics and qualities you have, and what those mean, 
based on social constructions, but your true person. He says, for someone who has no regard for the true person, they assume when they encounter this, body and mind, this is me, this is myself, this is what I am. When I encounter my sensations, when my senses make contact with things, this is me, this is who I am, this is what I have. When I have perceptions, we'll have the same constellation of beliefs, and so on, the skandhas that we chanted this morning, the constituent parts that essentially make up in Buddhism the person. That is, we encounter each aspects of this person-making consciousness, that at each point we're looking at it appropriately and saying, oh, this is what I am. This is who I am. But when selflessness is misunderstood, the emptiness of the self is misunderstood, a student in this sutra asked the Buddha, might there be agitation, though, over what is externally not present? Once we gain a false understanding that nothing exists, then the Buddha said, there is the case when someone thinks, oh, it was mine. Oh, but what what was mine is not. Oh, may it be mine. Oh, I don't obtain it. In other words, I can't have it. It's been taken away. It doesn't exist. And he says, this person will grieve and be tormented. They'll weep and beat their breast and grow delirious. In other words, when we have an idea that everything's going to be taken away, that the national teacher turning his back means you don't exist. Nothing exists outside of you. And then the student says, what about if internally there is nothing? That being selfless means that there's, it's just non-existence. And the Buddha said, yeah. Then it could occur to somebody that I will be annihilated. And so it might be that I will perish. I will not exist. And so I grieve and I'm tormented and weep and I beat my breast and you get it. But how is it when we really examine? How do we examine? And so the Buddha, in a sense, gives us an example. He says, students, why don't you possess that possession? Go ahead. Take ownership of that possession. That possession which you see to be constant and permanent and eternal and never changing and that will stay like this forever. Find that thing and hold on to it. So he's sending you out on a mission. He's giving you an assignment. Right? And he's basically speaking to the place we start in. That's what things are like. That's what I've been looking for, is that thing. And he's saying, okay, go find it. And then he gives you a chance to do that. And then he says, okay, did you find that? And the answer is no. I could not find anything having that nature. And he said, I too. I, too, have never found a possession that is constant and permanent and eternal. He says, but don't stop there. What about an idea of yourself? Go find that. Cling to that. Find that so that you never have sorrow. You never lament. You have no pain, no grief, no despair, because you have that. You are a self. Find that self. And then come back when you found it. You know where this is going. I, too, 
and have never found a doctrine of self that I could cling to. In clinging to an idea of self, I have never found it to be anything other than a path of sorrow and pain and grief and despair. But don't stop there. We're not finished. He says, so now, at least try and find a view, an ideology, a belief system that you can depend upon, in which when you depend upon it, when you adhere to it, when you pledge your loyalty, there will be no sorrow, there will be no pain, no grief, no despair. It will save you from all of that. Can you find such a view that you cling to? Because there's right understanding. We can say there's a view from the perspective of Buddhism. And then he says, I too have never found a view to which when I cling to it, did not bring all of those unfortunate consequences. And so what he's saying is, there is another way. Why would he present it this way? Why doesn't he just say, this is the way it is, believe it, trust me, proceed. Because he wants us to know for ourselves. Because in that, there's faith, there's conviction, there's confidence. If we're just practicing on the basis of faith in what somebody else says, which isn't unimportant, we couldn't even get started without that. But ultimately, we have to see, we have to examine our delusion. We have to examine the thing that we're trying to free ourselves of in order to understand it. And not only understand it in terms of its machinations, but what its consequences are. Because in that confidence, in that faith, in our own experience, then it's easier to let go of the things we have held onto for so long and believed in and cherished and depended upon that are not easily let go of. Because we believe in them, have depended upon them, and have cherished them. It's only really when we really are seeing, okay, this is not working. And it's not theoretical. I get it. And it's still difficult, because the habit is still there. And so the national teacher calls out attendant, yes, teacher, once, three times, 3,000 times. From the very beginning, it's you who had turned your back on me. You, who holding on to no thing, depending on no view, Finding your natural mind are no longer depending on the teacher. When the wind blows, the leaves dance without knowing. When the fledglings of the spring are ready to fly, they open their wings and take to the air. They know how to fly before leaping. But only in leaping is that confirmed. When someone stumbles, you reach out. There's no thought of, I can, I can't, I should, I shouldn't. It's like in the commentary where he says, the national teacher was old. His mind was perfectly alone. Perfectly alone. And in that aloneness, everyone's present. And they too are alone. And now we can begin to understand how to help. 
to respect people's aloneness. It's not isolation. It's not distance. It's their whole being, which is complete. That's why, he says, it's like holding an ox's head down to eat grass, but not hungry, not eating, not seeking, not searching, not fearful. The teacher's burden is like iron prison stocks without holes. It's often said that in, in taking on the mantle of the teacher, that you, it's like putting on an iron yoke, the responsibility. That's what is passed on, that great vow. That teacher's burden is their vow. That's what's been transmitted. And the nature of that vow is so profound that it renders idleness impossible. It renders idleness impossible. Can't be. There's too much possibility. Too many crying out. Too many Buddhas sitting by the water, thirsty. And so he says, if you want to support the house, Open up the gates and doors. Open them all up. It's not complicated. It's simple enough. Go barefoot and just climb a mountain of thorns. That's all. Go barefoot. In other words, trust yourself that much. Allow yourself to face what is true. And in being true, sometimes it's difficult. Whether it's the, the story, the idea of ourself, or of another, or of a nation that we want to believe is all good, has done all good, and then we realize it's not. There are things to take responsibility for, things to atone for, things to repair. And so in facing those truths, we then become empowered, we become free to take care of it, to attend to it. When we don't, we're not willing to do that, we can't do anything except deny, except avoid. And don't we see a bit of that going around? What are we afraid of? What is the threat? And so I'll end with a poem. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Before you were born, it was already so that all people and the many beings are created equal. In this equality, the differences are even more beautiful. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, gods and demons living together, drinking from the same spring, turning in, turning out, till every side has fallen. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness unborn, undying, unbound, no regrets. An intention is something to be lived every day. I pray, I vow to live my intentions. I pray that you will live yours. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, Dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org.
Support for your spiritual practice at home.